Hi, this is Mark Bittman. Welcome to Food. As always, you can reach out to us at food at markbittman.com. We'd love to hear from you. Rate the podcast and subscribe as well. You might also consider subscribing to our twice or thrice weekly newsletter, The Bitman Project. And you can visit us also at markbitman.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. In 1974... My friend Lucy had me over to her house for Middle Eastern food. I'm not sure anyone who wasn't a native of Armenia, I did know a couple of Armenians, had ever cooked that kind of food for me before in their home. The food was fabulous. Stewed lamb with what I can only call melted spinach. The best pilaf I'd ever tasted up until then. A salad of dried fruit and nuts with rose water that completely blew my mind. I make that all the time. How the hell did you do this? I demanded of her. She was about the same level of cook as I was at the time, which was not quite a rank beginner, but this food was just something new. A new cookbook, she said, and handed me a copy of Claudia Roden's Book of Middle Eastern Food, just out in paperback. I still have that copy. There were not a lot of authentic, really well done cookbooks with foods of other countries, other regions at that time. I became a fan of Claudia's, and I looked at, bought, reviewed most or all of the books she produced over the years. I was fascinated not only by her story, which we'll get into a little bit in this interview, but by her ability to write recipes in a way that made it possible for the home cook to produce flavors we'd never imagined or at best experienced in travel or in restaurants. She is a terrific cookbook author, among the best, and highly influential. And you don't need to take my word for it. Yote Amodalengi is among the chefs who cite her as an influence. It sounds crazy to say this, but nearly 50 years after that first Claudia Roden experience, that meal that my friend Lucy cooked, in 2013, I visited Claudia in London 
We cooked together. We chatted for hours. I wrote about it for the Times. I wasn't intimidated by meeting a longtime idol. I was delighted. We had a wonderful time together and have remained in touch. So it's with a great deal of pleasure that I present our version of a Hanukkah show with my friend Claudia Roden. Here we go. Nice to see you. Good to see you. We've met before. You've told me this story before, but you know, your background, at least by the standards of our generation, and especially by the standards of Americans of my generation, our generation is unusual at least. And I'm not asking for you to recount your whole life story here, but a kind of sketch of it, and especially how you became interested in food and cooking. Yes. Well, I think uh, in Egypt, I was part of a Jewish family in a big Jewish community uh, with a huge uh, extended family, within a huge extended family. And there wasn't very, very much about life apart from going swimming. We were part of clubs and going to the cinema once a week. And a lot of life was about visiting, visiting and entertaining. And so food was very important. And for us, food, yes, was Syrian in Egypt because three of my grandparents were from Aleppo. And one of my, uh, my maternal grandmother was from Istanbul. But I went to school in Paris and went to art school in London. I was there for two years uh, sharing a flat with two brothers. And uh, I was cooking because for them, uh, okay. for us, and for friends as well, because food at the time in Britain was horrible. But post-war at this point, yes? Yes, yeah. Yeah. it was post-war. It was 54, 1954, and not that long after the war. But, but uh, I was cooking, but suddenly, uh, yes, in 1956, there was what was called the Suez Crisis, when uh, Britain, France, and Israel had attacked Egypt because Egypt had nationalized the Suez Canal Company, which had uh, built the canal in the first place and uh, was manned by French and British company. And yes, as a result of that, the French and the British was were. Um, banished from Egypt, and so were the Jews. And so my parents suddenly arrived as refugees, and uh, with them also thousands of other Jews from Egypt, uh, traumatized and with having left everything behind and wondering where they would go, what would be happening to them, but so, uh, for me, everything suddenly changed. We were refugees, and I looked for work. I worked for, at Alitalia, and for several years, I was living in a bubble of uh, Jewish refugees from mm. Egypt. And it was at this time that I started collecting recipes, because... There hadn't been 
a single cookbook of any kind in Egypt. And I had never seen printed recipe. Uh, we couldn't believe that people actually would use a recipe in Egypt because they were handed down in the family. Nobody wanted to cook recipes from another family or from another community. Egypt had been um, a country that was very cosmopolitan with many minorities, and the Jewish community was a minority, and itself was a mosaic of families from different parts of the Ottoman Empire. Many of them had come uh, when the Suez Canal was built at the end of the 19th century. And for my grandparents, those who came from Aleppo, it was because their trade on the Silk Route and the Spice Route and the great, they were the big mercantile hub, was dead because of the... Uh, the canal had been built, and so a lot of Syrians, and they, with them, had moved to Egypt and to continue being merchants. And so the kind of recipes that they had, which we knew they had, but we all did our own thing, all of a sudden we realized that we would never be able to eat their foods. Cousins had come, we were related by marriage with people who came from Tunisia, uh, from uh, Greece, from, um, uh, from different parts of, of the Mediterranean as well. And uh, we realized, or at least I realized, when people started asking each other for recipes, people were saying, Give me your recipe for that cake. Give me your recipe for such a thing. I might never see you again because nobody knew where they would end up. Nobody knew if they would be accepted in uh, Britain. We were really asylum seekers. And uh, actually, we never saw them again when people said, I might never see you again. Give me that recipe, and when I'll cook it, I'll re it'll remind me of you. And so uh, I realized how important it was. So I wasn't thinking ever for quite a long time of doing a book, but it was for us, because I thought if this is the most precious thing we took away that uh, we had, and if we lose it, we'll never find it again. And so I really thought it must be the most important thing I can do is to record the recipes. And that's how I started. And uh, I became uh, like an obsessed collector's. Uh, I would ask everybody that I met in those days, I kept meeting people from, from Egypt who were refugees. Some of them were passing through London. My, they would come uh, and for Friday night. There were always a lot. And I would just go and say, can you give me a recipe? And, and I would go and look for them as well. Uh, and, and some of them took out a little booklet 
and tell me recipes. In Egypt, they would never have given you recipes. But there we were all not rivals about our our cooking standards. Uh, And everybody wanted to give recipes. They wanted them to be recorded. To be clear, it began with collecting uh, recipes of the Egyptian Jewish diaspora, really. People, Jews who'd come from around the Mediterranean, the Middle East, to Egypt, and then left mostly for England, were the first ones you met. So it was all of these cultures filtered through Egyptian Jews back into London. That's right. It started. But then I wanted to see, uh, you know, do they... I never thought there was Jewish food at that time. None of us thought we had Jewish food. We just had the food we ate. Uh, And it was Syrian, Tunisian, Morocco, or or, or each family had theirs. And, And But I just thought, well, I want to go and research elsewhere. It means I would go to embassies, you know, like to the Persian embassy. And they would say, do you want a visa? No, I'm looking for recipes. Yeah. And I would sit there and I did meet people. They invited me to their homes. I've got all their handwritten, a lot of handwritten recipes. In those days, it was so strange for anyone to be interested in somebody else's recipes. It was strange. But for instance, I went to the Moroccan embassy. They, somebody there said, the ambassador's wife can give you some. And I, I, uh, uh, she did. And at this point, were you collecting for a book? Did you have that in mind? That's right. It's when I started thinking of a book that I became seriously, seriously concerned about checking, are these recipes Uh, Just one woman gave them to me. No, I asked more than one person. And it turned out that the recipes were the same. It means tradition was so powerful that people cooked the same. Nobody ever wanted to be different at all. It was embarrassment if they did something different, even though Everybody did tell me, you know, I do things a bit different, or I do it a bit better than others. (laughs) Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Thank you. 
you know, really in a way you were among the first people to travel and collect recipes and certainly among the first people, if not the first person to do this kind of collection, at least in English of, of Middle Eastern foods. Did you feel the impact of this? Did you recognize that you were doing something unusual and maybe important? I did gradually, because at the time, you know, my hardback book, only 3,000 copies sold. It wasn't really uh, a big seller. But but they never did any more books afterwards. They did school books, that publisher. But I realized only gradually after paperback came out that people were uh, using the book, but also that, for instance, Marks and Spencer, one of our supermarkets started actually making them from my book mm. and asking me to come and taste the hummus. They asked they had asked a, a company that was from Cyprus to make from the book, the tarama from the book. The, but also they had made, for instance, a whole tray of phyllo and of meze, a tray with uh, stuffed vines filo pastries, uh, various things that they got from my book, and they sold it as a tray of meze. And uh, my mother had gone to somebody's for tea, and she came back and she said, I can't believe that everything that we do, they had there, and they had bought it. Uh And then soon after, Mark Spencer asked me to come and taste to see if it was right. And then I saw my book there, and they had invited the maker, the producer, who came <laughs> and to see what I had to say. And I just realized that's what they did. And Sainsbury's, another supermarket, called to say, what should we be stocking? And I said, uh, you have, what about stocking bulgur? What about stocking couscous? chickpeas, you know, such a thing. And they actually started making phyllo, getting phyllo and producing it. Then I started seeing um, uh, the next thing was chefs, because it it became a time, also after, especially after my Mediterranean book, when chefs started doing their own thing, because before that, uh, chefs were always doing French cuisine, chefs that wanted to do grand or special food. But it became a thing. I mean, the first one was called Alistair Little, and he had been uh, he had started anthropology. He studied that. And then he became a chef and did his own thing. And he called me once, invited me to lunch, and, and I said, oh, this is good. And he said, well, you should know it comes from your book. (laughs) (laughs) That's always nice. Yeah, it was really nice. And of course, I saw it as an honor. And he made it especially well. But also, I realized how much it had an influence in Israel at the same time. Because when my book, the first Middle Eastern book came out as Israel, the publishers there said, we're publishing it, but we don't think we'll sell it because it's our enemy culture and we despise it. And we want all our Arab Jews to leave their culture behind 
Now we are a new world here. Well, that's depressing as hell, isn't it? <laughs> Can you imagine? And look, at now it's their main thing, is the main export. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was really strange. But still my book sold and never stopped selling in Hebrew. And then I gradually saw chefs there who were doing Middle Eastern. But it was only when the Jewish book came out there in Hebrew. I had several events there in one of the big five-star hotels. We did every night a dinner of a different Jewish uh, community. So we did even Indian Jewish, we did, you know, it went on and on. And we had television there every night doing something, sort of showing all the film. And then each time the television crew were saying, where's all this that we don't see, you know? They didn't even know any of the dishes, you know, from Iran, from uh, Morocco, from... You know, for them, it was like something they never knew. And uh, because every time somebody tried to open a restaurant, like an Iraqi Jewish restaurant, or there were lots of Iraqi Jews who were there, went there, and Moroccan Jews, no, people just didn't go to those restaurants. They might use the book, the Middle Eastern book, as something, but they never thought of Arab food as Jewish until now, uh, even now. They used to call the only Jewish, any food that called Jewish was Ashkenazi. And everything else they called ethnic, just ethnic. But now <laughs> they still say ethnic, but uh, they certainly don't despise. But it allowed them, even though there it was all there because there were all those communities were there but they didn't have the grander style of morocco because a lot of the poorer moroccans went to israel and and they didn't allow uh, you know the grand things from iran because a lot of the wealthier uh, communities jewish communities went to france and america and south america and and everywhere. So there, it was the first time that chefs could say, this is Jewish. And what I think now, the Middle Eastern food that has become so popular, that's created by Yotam, Otolenghi, and others, uh, and and, uh, Israeli chefs abroad. And what that is, which differentiates from Middle Eastern restaurants that are Turkish, Lebanese, Moroccan, is that those traditional Middle Eastern restaurants have to do what is traditional in a restaurant. It means kebabs with meze. And the mezes are always the same because yeah. they think they have to be the same because that's what people come to them for. And home cooking, the great home cooking of all the countries, of Turkey, of everywhere, doesn't get seen. But so what your town has created, and also chefs from Israel, 
they feel now they can use the home cooking of the Jewish communities anywhere, but particularly those of the Middle East, it seems to be, and North Africa, they can use them as Israeli cuisine right. and as Jewish. It is Jewish because it's in a book called The Book of Jewish Food <laughs> and, now, and now in a hundred others right. uh, called Jewish Food. And so, or rather a thousand others maybe. But so uh, they are doing uh, what is really the home cooking of the Sephardi uh, Jews, who now also call Mizrahi Jews, means Arab Jews. It is their home cooking that is now not only the, is the basis of a fusion nouvelle cuisine, and it's fusion of their cooking, but it's a fusion of home cooking, which is something really unusual and different. But they all feel, and your time, best of all, doing it, that they can mix something from Morocco with a sug from Yemen, with something from Turkey, with something from Lebanon. They feel they can put them together. They can do what they like with a dish. They can present it. They have become innovators. And they are using as basis this home cooking that nobody knew existed. We're coming up on Hanukkah, and I'm just, it never seemed to me that it was a holiday. I mean, as I, I grew up as an American Jew. It's a different story, obviously. But it never seemed to me that it was a holiday with very many food traditions other than latkes or sufganyot and but there were there weren't a lot of things i wonder if you could talk for a minute about if there are hanukkah traditions around the world or around the mediterranean yes uh for instance in italy they have deep fried chicken pieces in batter and in egypt we had zalabia and zalabia in in greece they had Lukumades, or kind of lukumate, and, mm -hmm. and in Morocco, North Africa, it's svenge. And what's that, svenge? Yeah, it's different kinds of fritters. Aha, uh -huh. everything is a fritter, right, the oil-based celebration it is, really. Yeah, it is oil-based. Last question is, and we ask this of everyone, what did you have for dinner last night? Well, dinner last night, it was also a fish soup, but oh. it wasn't in my house. I was in a restaurant in Folkestone. Folkestone. Uh, I was speaking there with Jeremy Lee, a friend who is a chef. And and afterwards, it was by, Folkestone is by the sea. I stayed the night and I was there with my daughter and we went, the two of us, by the sea and we had all fish things. And I had a skate as well. Sounds great. It has been wonderful having you and nice to catch up a little bit and so great to hear that history. I really appreciate it. Thank you so, so much for being interested. Thank you, Claudia. Take care. Bye. Bye. There are so many great recipes in this book. Chicken baked with olives and lemon, yogurt cake, potato salad with green olive tapenade. I mean, there's just, 
it's a terrific cookbook. And I do recommend that you go look up the original book of Middle Eastern food by Claudia and check that out too. But you know, I like to keep these recipes I read on the podcast simple. So I'm going to present you with Claudia's Mediterranean pantry salad, but really do encourage you to go look further. This is a very simple dish, more complicated in its shopping than in its preparation. So you need piquillo peppers, which you can find canned, and you want four of them drained of their oil. A seven-ounce can of tuna in oil, good tuna, drained. I mean, the best is called ventresca, which is belly, but good tuna. A small can of anchovies, also drained. That's a two-ounce can. Twelve black olives, four plum tomatoes, four hard-boiled eggs, three tablespoons olive oil, a tablespoon of vinegar, and salt and pepper. So, as I said, drain those four tomatoes, drain that can of tuna, drain the two-ounce can of anchovies, pit the black olives, cut the plum tomatoes, you have four of them into wedges, peel and quarter the hard-boiled eggs too, and then divide those things among four plates. So each plate will have a piquillo, some tuna, anchovies, some olives, a quartered tomato, a quartered egg, and then beat together the oil and vinegar with some salt and pepper, season to taste and drizzle that over each serving. Obviously the simplest recipe in the book or among them, but as I said, I do encourage you to take this further. Okay, that's that, enjoy it. Thanks as always to our wonderful guest, Claudia Roden, who I'm so happy to have known for so long and who's always been such an inspiration. Her latest book, Claudia Roden's Mediterranean, is out now. And for those of you celebrating Hanukkah, eat latkes. You should check out Claudia's other books also. And thank you so much for listening. Our theme music is by Moby. And um, you can follow us at Bitman or at Mark Bitman on Instagram and Facebook. We will see you again next week when we will have somebody awesome. Bye for now.